Well, church, it is a pleasure to be here with you. It has been a pleasure to interact with the search team as well as the elders. And certainly this week, as I, we were able to bring our family with us, it has been a pleasure to just meet more of you. And it is, we, we found there to be a good consistency between those that we met in the earliest stages, except for Rich, and then uh, to, just kidding, um, mostly. And then to meet the rest of you, we are so grateful for how you have been well represented and there's just been a, um, a great camaraderie, a very like-heartedness in many ways, and even a like-mindedness in, in visiting with the elders, how we reason through matters. And those are all important things that we seek when it comes to fit. So I just want to encourage you as you pray and as you seek, as we are doing the same thing, that really the Lord's will would be made clear to all of us. And I don't want to spend another ounce of time on that because I deeply desire to get into the word and I'm deeply afraid I'm not going to get you to Sunday school on time. So let's go ahead and if you would turn to the very end of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Yes, we're wading into the very shallow end on my very first time to ever share with you the book of Hebrews. It actually is my favorite book. Even in the video greeting I shared with you a few weeks ago, um, I actually referenced this passage. It is the benediction in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now, one thing that I have noticed in my brief time with you is that the sports allegiances are all over the map. Uh, I mean, literally, they, they are, you could draw a, a, a wide radius and, and capture both love and hatred. And so hopefully our love for Christ exceeds even examples I will share along the way. But I do want to mention this because it, it invariably, to me, really has to do somewhat, at least on a pop culture level, with um, the question that we're asking this morning in this sermon, which is, to what end? And that's simply the question I want to resound in you over and over again as we look at this text, and really as you examine your life in light of what you know Christ has done for you, who he is to you and what he has done for you in your place. To what end? So I was actually, I was just going through, one of my favorite interviews um, is with Tom Brady on 60 Minutes back in 2005. Many of you have probably seen that interview. Um, it was right after he won his third Super Bowl with the Patriots. And it's a, it's a really telling video actually, because as he's sharing his story and really what it's like to have won a third one at the age of 27, you know, he just really, he doesn't really break down, but he starts breaking down, so to speak. And you can tell, you can see just behind the veneer of, I hope there's something more. In fact, he says that. He says, this really can't be all there is. I mean, he's only 27 and he's already met the pinnacle, at least of professional sports for, for most of us throughout the United States. Most, at least the numbers would say that it's pro football. And, and for him to have won three Super Bowls in such a short amount of time, and really just such an incredible story, actually, and how it came about. And for him to still have that sense of, is there more? So even through great accolade and lots of money and certainly gaining more, and then certainly since then has, has married. I mean, they are two of the prettiest people on planet Earth and they will have pretty children and they have all the money and everything you would desire. And yet I've seen interviews even since then, 16, 17 years later, he still seems to be reaching for even more. And that's I'm not saying anything against him. I just, I love his honesty, actually. You know, I love the honesty of there is still something more he's grasping and groping for. And we, of course, see that in Romans, right? We see that even in Romans 8, where the scriptures tell us that we are built in the image of God, but sans the spirit of God being indwelling in us, we still have this stamp of longing, 
of desiring for fulfillment, for something to be redeemed, reconciled, made right. Something just quite is outside of our reach. And another example I thought of was a movie I probably watch about once a year. I remember how uncomfortable I was when I took my father to the theater when Saving Private Ryan came out because um, it, not so much for the, uh, the graphic depiction of the violence, but really for the language because it was just, you know, my dad used to hold my ears even when D and H words were said on the TV and, um, and yet he really didn't do anything to stop it. And so it was, it's kind of amusing actually. Um, so we just, we just cuss freely in my house. Just, we don't, I'm just kidding. We don't at all. Just <laughs> relax there. We don't. That's for my kids to snicker. Um, but actually that movie is also is another example of So one being when you have great victory, you have what seems like everything this world has to offer. Another one when you are in the face of great sacrifice where someone else has done so much for you. And if you remember at the end of that movie, it's such a telling and and almost, I mean, it, it brings man tears. They're man tears. There's nothing, you know, wimpy about the tears that may be produced when, when you're in a national cemetery and you're seeing the sacrifices. It's it's man, John Wayne tears, it's okay. But as, as Private Ryan in, in his latter stages of life looks to his wife and says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've been a good man. And she goes, what? Of course. But it's in light of what? He's looking at the headstone of the one who gave the most for him, who led men to give their lives almost to a man for him to live simply because he was one of a handful of three brothers and they didn't want all the brothers to die because two others had. And they just didn't want that story. Seems somewhat random, but he wanted to make sure that he had lived up to the sacrifice that had led to that moment, right? So we have to remember and ask ourselves a question because this question is not just for believers, it's actually universal. To what end? To what end am I doing this? What is my purpose in this? What am I actually gonna gain from this? I want you to keep that in mind. First, we're going to actually read the benediction, which is in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 13. And then we are going to take a brisk, I'll say power walk, but that, that evokes images of people actually power walking, which is an odd picture in my head. I'm a runner, but um, I'm getting older, so I guess I'm going to have to start doing that strange and odd power walking cadence. But uh, we're going to do that because we're going to talk about a lot of passages through the book of Hebrews that backload this benediction. Okay, so verses 20 and 21, Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I really believe with all my heart that this two-verse, two-sentence benediction is actually a summary of what we see in the book of Hebrews. I think it actually encapsulates the two major sections that we have in the book of Hebrews, which are simply this. If you were to break up the book of Hebrews, you could look at Hebrews 1-1 through about 10-18 and see very clearly that that is about the supremacy of Christ. Simply, the supremacy of Christ. We're going to walk through some of that in just a moment. From 1019 until 1325, the end of the book, you essentially have the supremacy of Christ in the life of the church. So in a sense, it is here is who Christ is and what he's done in all of his supremacy. And here is how it impacts the life of the church. 
Now that's a natural combination that we should always consider. And in a sense, it actually answers the question with some detail, to what end? To what end has this supreme Christ who is supreme and who has done the supreme act, to what end has that been done for us? What does that mean for us? What is our response appropriately so, appropriately so to this great and supreme person? And in light of that, what is it we are actually blessed the most with? So let's begin this quick cadence. Hebrews chapter 1. I would say this in summary, that Jesus Christ is seen as the supreme heir. He is superior to angels. He is the son, not a servant. He is superior to all of the prophets. In fact, verses 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he was spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is all of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the writer of Hebrews begins building this case that he, is, he, is, he has supremacy over every and all other being or entity that they would ever count of significance, whether supernatural in this world. And you'll see that as it develops. So for instance, in Hebrews chapter two, the writer says, basically, listen up. He is also fully human. He is God of God, but he is also man of man. He is fully human. And in doing so, that makes him superior to do what's about to happen, what they're about to articulate, because he has to be fully human to go through everything that we would go through as our priest, as you'll see in just a minute. And in doing so, he does so perfectly because he does it all without any sin whatsoever. He had to have been fully human as well as fully divine to do what he's about to do or what they're about to tell us that he did. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay, so he gives us his human name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And if you skip down to the end of that chapter in verses 16 through 18, it says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, without going into depth there, simply, you know that earlier Paul, now we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, probably Paul or Luke, some say maybe Apollos, we don't know. But the case is, is that earlier in Galatians, for instance, we see that Paul references that not all Israel is Israel. And then when God made a covenant with Abraham's offspring, he said it in the singular, not plural. And he says plainly, very plainly spoken, that the one that he made a covenant with is the offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus Christ. Okay, so the fulfiller of the Abrahamic covenant is Jesus Christ, not a bunch of people, not a bunch of offspring. And he also says, and this doesn't mean every time the scriptures reference Israel, it means it's replaced with the church. However, we do know that when Paul says that not all Israel is Israel, he is talking about the spiritual Israel, which is Jew and Gentile grafted together into the people of God, what we do understand to be the redeemed, which we would understand to be the church. So when he says that, the offspring of Abraham, that we are the ones that he has helped. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, fully human, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter three, he's superior to Moses. Okay, now we're starting to get somewhere because Moses is right up there. He would be on the Mount Rushmore uh, of just a handful of people for the Jewish people. He's a son who serves as a deliverer. So Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. So he's superior to Moses in that Moses was, in a sense, a type of Christ. But we also know that the Pentateuch prophesied about one like Moses coming later on. And so we even see with the woman at the well, for instance, I mean, it's a fantastic story to me because here you have a woman at the well. She's a garrison. And so a garrison, actually, all they, they don't actually accept the Old Testament in full. They only accept the Pentateuch. But we also know the woman, the woman is, is a woman who has several relations. We don't know if she was a so-called woman of the night or just someone really bad at marriage, but she had several men and went from one man to the next to the next. And it was, it would have been very scandalous. Okay. And so Jesus is talking to her and she said, again, think about the type of woman she is. And even she says, we know that one like Moses is coming. This is not a scholar. And this is not even someone who's acceptable in society. And all she has is the Pentateuch the first five books of the Old Testament. And she still knows that there is someone like Moses coming. He's a type, but he's still not the one. So the writer of Hebrews is making clear, Jesus Christ is this one who fulfills all for Moses. And then in Hebrews chapters four through eight really deal with the fact that Christ is superior as both priest and sacrifice. I don't know if I'll get to go through all of these verses, but I do wanna share some of them with you. One we've already read. Okay, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. I'm not going to read it again, but that is where we have this great sympathetic high priest that we are able to go to because of exactly who he is and the nature of who he is. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is kind of a cheat because it's not fair for me to even say the name Melchizedek without giving much explanation, but there is a mystery behind him. And and let me just simply say this. What we know about Melchizedek is that he has no written origin story at all. There's no origin story. So you're not going to have a a prequel in the story of the Old Testament and, and have this really awesome story about who Melchizedek was and where he came from. We don't know. We don't have any record of it. So that part's unknown, his origination. But really, it's more significant that he was the king of Salem. Okay, but he was also a high priest. Now, this is very unusual. If you remember, every time in the Old Testament that some king tried to act like a priest, it never went well. God always kept those parts separate. He always demanded that they would be separate because they conflated with one another what was going on with kingdoms. But with Melchizedek, it was not only allowed, but it was actually ordained because this was the one who interacted with Abraham leading into that Abrahamic covenant and the interaction he would have. And so the significance of this, just to keep it simple, is this. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which literally means shalom, which is peace. He's literally the king of peace, which Salem was actually the name precursor to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Salem, the city of peace. That was Melchizedek, but he was also high priest at the time who actually sent 
Abraham on his way in the path of ordination for upholding the covenant that God made with him. Incredibly significant. And he's saying Christ is like this priest, but not certainly a fulfillment and certainly not a reincarnated version, but the superior, the better, the true and better version. He is the fulfillment of everything that Melchizedek was even showing you a glimpse for. Jesus Christ is it. He actually is the prince of peace. He did so in the city of Jerusalem. He is also the high priest who, because he was raised from the dead, there is no longer a need for any other priest to come. In fact, as we go on, it says in chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, a holy of holies reference where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then if you jump to chapter 7, verses 22 through 25, he goes on and says, the former priests, in verse 23, says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented. I love, this is one of my favorite verses because it is the biggest no-duh statement that you can read in the book of Hebrews. They were prevented from continuing in office by death. That would do it. But Christ is able to uphold this office as priest. Why? Because he was raised from the dead. But this is also where it shows us later on as we move through this, that he is also a better sacrifice. If you skip down to chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So he did not purify earthly temples and tents, which all symbolized heaven and the kingdom of heaven, the presence of God. Jesus, because he is the son, not just a servant, because he's a priest that perpetuates because he's alive, not one that died and could not do so, he is actually able to enter into the presence of holy God the Father and purify that place on our behalf. Not because that place is unclean, but because we are not fit to be there. This is why Christ had to be fully human, because in his humanity, he was tempted in every way that we have ever been tempted and yet without sin. So in doing so, having perfectly fulfilled the command of the Father to actually live a perfect life that you and I could never live, and then to offer a sacrifice, and not just any sacrifice. As high priest, he was charged to go before the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, to offer a sacrifice. But for this sacrifice, it was himself. So just in the same way that every high priest was prevented from continuing as a priest, By death, so was every other sacrifice. In fact, Hebrews in chapter 9 says the blood of bulls and goats was never designed to eternally remove guilt. Ever. But Christ's blood can. They had to shed blood at least annually. And if they had the capacity, they could do it regularly. But at least annually, they had to have these sacrifices brought by the high priest before the presence of God. And in doing so, when Christ does it, he lays down his life. He actually does spill blood. He does actually die. He 
goes away. His breath is gone. And he then being raised from the dead becomes a sacrifice that means no more. As surely as we have a high priest that continues, we have a sacrifice that continues to be good, appropriate. So he is superior as priest. He is superior as sacrifice. And we really have to ask ourselves as we go through all this, and as you again, I want you to skip again all the way back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Let's read it again, at least just verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who came from the order of Melchizedek, as we've just read, okay, the king of, of Salem, the prince of peace, this is the God of peace, but it also helps us realize that there was reconciliation, there needs to be peace made. Okay, he's not just accepting people randomly. He actually had to pay a price for those who have sinned. He says, in doing so, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, vital for the fact that he is then superior priest being raised from the dead and sacrifice being raised from the dead. I mean, essentially guys, and, and look, I do wholeheartedly affirm that in a sense, once saved, always saved. I, I somewhat reject once prayed, always saved because repentance and evidence of fruit is what we need to see in our lives and in lives, not just the memory of having prayed a prayer at some point. I do not believe you can lose your salvation, but I also believe that scripture can get in the in-between places and, and really forces us to ask some really hard questions. If we don't continue to hold to our faith, it may give evidence that many people have remained very Christian in their cultural outlook and in their moral aptitude and yet remain lost. There are people that are like that. In any church of any size in America, there are unregenerate church members. But what we see here is that we have one who has been raised from the dead. And that is why we are saved forever. That is why, because Christ perpetuates, so does our salvation. We are safe forever because we have a high priest who is at the right hand of the Father, having been the high priest and having been the sacrifice on our behalf, that for those of us who have simply placed our faith in him alone to save us, apart from any work of ourselves, we know we are safe forever because Christ can never die again. He, because he's eternal, I am too, because Christ, the hope of glory, resides in me. Okay? So that's where our confidence lies in the eternality of our salvation. So as you look at this, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. And even though shepherd is not used anywhere else in the text, the shepherd servant motif that is used in Hebrews really has a lot to do with Moses. So again, you have, a, it's almost like he's working backwards. The priest, the sacrifice, being raised from the dead, the shepherd of the sheep, which is a very Moses type reference. And then he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's, that's just verse 20. And in a sense, what he's saying is, here is the blessings of God for you, the person of Christ. And we have to ask ourselves at this point, has Jesus Christ done all of this and been all of this for us, been superior in all these things we've just read and we've just articulated? Has he been all that for us just so, to what end? So that we could have the American dream just with a mostly clear conscience? that we're moral people? Is that the end for which he has been all of this for us? Is it just so that in our pursuit of having 
peace and education or whatever else we want to achieve in this world, the best jobs. I mean, think about even our own lives. We are all over the place in what we think will give us relief. So for instance, we could, we could actually be suffering and just say, if I only I could not experience pain. And we have some struggles in our family of chronic pain issues, some diseases in my family where I see suffering on a regular basis that is hard to watch. And I want her to have relief. I want her to know the freedom of that. And yet at the same time, I also know she has a pressing reminder of her need for Christ. It reminds me of the Spurgeon quote that he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that casts me upon the rock of ages. Now I'm not there yet. I don't think. But there have been moments where he allows you to be driven down, pressed down just enough until what seed remains develops a really deep root. And he is good in that. But still, to what end? Is your relief for pain just so you're pain-free? Is your relief from your debt, is your achievement of having ascended to the ideal job? Again, to what end? Well, it is to no less end than where this benediction ends up. So what he says all the way through the, the end of verse 20, he then picks up in 21, which in a sense is an articulation of what we see in chapters 10, 19 through the end of the chapter, which I'm not going to go through as we did in the first part. But what I said earlier was chapter 1, 1 through 10, 18 is that Christ is superior or the supremacy of Christ. 10, 18 through 13, 25 is the supremacy of Christ in the life of the church. So when he says, may this God, verse 21, equip you with everything good. And when he says you, this is a corporate statement. He says, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This God who has done all this and has been all of this on our behalf while we are in this world, and it's not the end, it's still the means, but the means that we get to our end is that we corporately together agree that he is equipping us as a people, as a collective in this particular place at this particular time to do the will of the Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you look at this, let me just walk through verse 21 with you because we, we somewhat walk through verses 20 um, by just reading through those passages. Verse 21, he starts out with equip you. And what that literally means is that he's going to complete, fulfill. And I love this definition of it as well. He, the, the catarzo word is to mend, even to heal. So equipping is what? Equipping is something that gives you the things that you need to do the job. It's not the job. So I love that even here when it comes to, like I was mentioning earlier, the relief from pain or being healed. That's not the end. If he does that, if he chooses to complete you in a way that he actually heals you even physically, praise God. He may not though, right? He may not. There's no guarantee that he will. I don't know why I said will. That's weird. I said will. There we go. There is no guarantee that he will do such a thing. But if he does, it is to equip you, particularly among a group of people, to bear testimony and witness of the things that he's done, but still for something more. And we'll show you that in just a minute. 
He says that in his equipping, he will equip you with everything good. And I see that really essentially as 10 through 13. You see hints of it in chapter 13. You see hints of it in chapter 10. He says that now we come together, let us then come with confidence. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And what a joy it is to be able to return to somewhat a lack of restriction and yet we still want to show love and care for our neighbors even as we go out to establishments that still require masks. We don't want to decry that. Let's be kind, let's be generous. But he has given us confidence. He's gifted us with faith. Do we not see that in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter? But even then, it's not, you know, when you see that and you go into chapter 12 and he says, we have this great cloud of witnesses. So often growing up, it was referenced as if it was a, uh, almost an arena of people cheering you on. And that's not the case. Chapter 11 is exemplary. And twice in chapter 11, you have them say, some of these actually did and accomplished great things and they conquered, they, were, they conquered armies, they conquered lands. That's early on in the chapter. And it says they were able to do so because they knew there was another kingdom they were doing it for. But you know what happens at the back half of that chapter? Some were sawn in two. None of them saw what was promised. And the way they were able to do so is because they knew they were doing it for a kingdom that was not yet. He equips us with faith and that faith essentially for us as a church for a particular people at a particular time is to remember this is not the final resting place. We are sojourners. We are those who are passing through this life together and we better figure out to what end are we doing this together right here right now until the Lord comes. And let's not lose sight of the fact that this is for a kingdom that has been not yet but we know it is. So he gives us these examples. He gives us the record of the word. You can see that in, in, in chapter 12 where he talks about the record of the word and what he gives us in the faithful testimony of the Old Testament for our good. In chapter 13, he gives you under shepherds, which it would do you well to follow. I kind of thought for a minute I was just going to read, I think it's chapter 17 when I came up here initially, obey your leaders and submit to them and just say, amen, we're done. And I wasn't going to because that would be a little harsh and you don't know me that that would be a joke. But um, the fact is though, that is a gift to the church, our under shepherds. You always have had a chief shepherd. You've never had an interim period where the chief shepherd you were looking for. He has always been around. But he does gift you with under shepherds, pastors, offices of elder, deacon that serve the body and serve the body in the ministry of word and prayer. Those are gifts. Those are part of the equipping of the us together to do the will of God. And when we say will, let me just simply say this. Hebrews 10, 7 through 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So when we ask the question, what is then the will of God? To what end are we equipped to do this will? What is that will? We may not know all the specifics of the will, but we know in general that it's always going to have to do with a declaration of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good will, the will of the Father that Christ came to accomplish is the will that we are to proclaim to the world and live out to the world. 
that it is a better law now. It's a better sacrifice. It's actually all good news. It absolutely demands for you to respond to the law, basically to realize that you're a sinner. You have to face up to the bad news to even understand that you need to hear something good. That is part of our gospel testimony and our story. But the will of God always has to do with a proclamation, a declaration, something verbal and something with our lives that lives out the fact that Christ and Christ alone in all of his supremacy and who he is and all the supremacy of all that he's done alone can save. But he can save any one of you. His act is superior to anything you have ever done. You have great sin, we have a greater savior. You have great failure, we have a greater success story in the person of Christ. There is nothing. If you wanna talk about the sufficiency of the blood of Christ, it does not matter what you've done. One thing could send you to hell, the great things could keep you from there or keep you in that place, so to speak, heading that direction. But whatever the case is, once you realize that you are essentially, no matter what your degree of sin by your own estimation, are simply trying to be God and you are not, when you start to realize that fact, you may just be getting close to realizing that there is one God and one God alone. And that God alone can save me. So doing the will of God is actually what is pleasing in his sight. And what we know is pleasing in his sight is what was pleasing in the sight of God in the act of Christ. So basically it is the gospel, guys. The will of God is the gospel being lived out and spoken out in the life of the local church. That should be our response to all that God has been for us and to us because ultimately what does it lead to? It leads to doxology. To him be glory forever and ever, amen. See, benediction is the blessing of God to man. We say statements that say this is the blessing of God to us. Doxology is us giving statements to God in praise. The right response to rightly comprehending a benediction, God's blessing to us, should always be doxology. Voice of praise to God. Gratitude. Thanks for who he is and what he's done. That is the appropriate response. So essentially, when we're doing the will of God in light of all that he's been and done for us and we do these gospel things as a particular people in Milford and the larger region around us, when we are proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel with our lives and everything else that even touches on it, when we are accomplishing the will of God, pleasing him by declaring his supremacy over all things, then we know that in that we are also going to be a people who are declaring praises to him, simultaneous to our suffering, simultaneous to our difficulty, and certainly simultaneous with any victories that he may give us. And in this doxology, we should conclude it where we say, amen, so be it. So be it, Lord. Anytime we hear the word of God preached, anytime that we hear it taught, anytime we have a chance to respond to hearing of the blessing of God for man, essentially you get this. We have been blessed by God, with God, for God. We've been blessed by God the Father, with God the Son, for the purpose of glorifying God in all of his trinity by the power of the Holy Spirit. By God, with God, for God. See, the greatest blessing you have in your Christian life is not the 10,000, it's Christ. 
It's Christ. So I challenge you, if you are here this morning, I want you to understand that as you ask the question, you know, to what end am I pursuing this job? To what end am I even here this morning for church? To what end am I here trying to pursue perhaps relationships or whatever it is? Whatever you come to a conclusion with regarding that question, if you are not at peace with the Father, it doesn't matter. It won't be enough. If it's not enough for a Tom Brady and, and you feel just at the end of your life a, a dead weight like Private Ryan, wondering if you measure up, if you are not at peace with the creator of the universe, it doesn't matter. I want to encourage you to visit with one of the pastors, the leaders, anyone you may see even around you just to say, I need to speak to somebody about what it means to be at peace with God. I'm realizing now that I'm a sinner and Jesus Christ is the only one that can save me. I implore you to talk with someone. Christian, I mean, how many times have we been so miserable? We know better. We know when we have pursued to the lesser ends. We know when we have dabbled in trying to make heaven here on earth, that we try to make, use God actually as a means to some other end besides himself. Well, repent of that this morning. Because when Christ died for you, he died for that sin also. It's taken care of, but you do need to confess it so that your fellowship is restored. To what end? It's just for the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and the fact that you have made clear to us that you are supreme in all things. You are supreme as our Savior, as a person by your nature, and you are also supreme in the work that you have done on our behalf. So I pray that we would yield to your supremacy. And that supremacy also means that you have conquered every sin that's represented in this room, known and unknown. There is nothing that you cannot overcome in any person's life where they can then find peace with you and then even victory to live freely for your glory and your pleasure. It is not too late because they are breathing. Lord, do that magnanimous work even this day, even now. And God, for the believers, I pray that we would as well confess our sin, that we would write our commitment to the local church because it's through this collection of people in this place that you've desired to work out your will, not independently, but corporately as a group so that we can remind one another of our chief end to glorify you, to magnify you. Helps to do that better. And God, we just lastly submit this to you because of the nature of this day and next week that if it be your will that we can do that better corporately with me here, with my family here joining and locking arms with the good people here at Milford Bible, then Lord, make that clear. And if it's not, we will submit to that as well. But may your will be done and may we do what is only pleasing in your sight for your glory and your good. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.